Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Paul Hayward, the author and columnist, and by Dominic Fifield of The Athletic. This week's guest is Roy Hodgson. At the age of 75, Sunday's match between Crystal Palace and Nottingham Forest could be the last in a 47-year managerial career. The end of an era, Paul, or do you think he'll be tempted to stay at Palace for one more season? I think he will, Mike, given how well it's gone in the last couple of months. And when he goes, it will be the end of an era because he's the last remaining link to a an English coaching tradition, Ron Greenwood, Bobby Robson, Don Howe, Terry Venables, who emerged after the Walter Winterbottom and Alf Ramsey era. And Roy Hodgson picked up that torch from them in 1976 with humble beginnings, obviously. And he's still carrying that torch now in a game that's dominated by, you know, £300,000-a-week salaries and nation-states owning clubs. He's 75 years old. He's managed 22 teams in eight countries. And he's still sure of himself. He's certainly still enthusiastic, and that's what keeps him going out on stage. Mm. What about the impact he's made on Palace, his latest or even his last spell there, Dom? Obviously, it's a club that you know very well. Well, he's he's been perfect for what Palace required at that particular time. You have to put the remember the context of one win in 17 games under Patrick Vieira, and for all that that's... Vieira's tenure at Palace had started so promisingly, it, it had petered out fairly dramatically. And Palace were the only team in in Europe's major leagues who hadn't actually won a game this calendar year when when Roy came in and immediately won his his first match against Leicester. He's listened to the players. He's he's got them playing in their preferred positions. He's found a way of integrating Michael Olise, Eberichieza, Wilfred Zaha when he's fit, Jordan Ayew. He's he's. He's got Palace ticking again and, and, and playing as we know that they can play. And, and I think that's actually why ultimately Palace will end up sticking with him for another year, because I, I suspect that that club will not have an awful lot of money to spend in the market this summer. They've got a, a stand they want to build at Celeste Park. They've got FFP considerations. They are very, very well run and tightly run in terms of they're not they're not risking their future not jeopardizing their future by overspending anymore and i think if you've got that scenario where your first priority is to remain in the division and you've got a manager that brings the best out of those players and doesn't get you relegated then i think you stick with him 
Mm. Well, Roy invited me into his office overlooking the training pitches before delivering a masterclass on coaching and management. I learned a lot, and I think you will too. Roy, thank you very much for your time and welcome. You're approached by a young coach who's about to embark on his managerial career. Everyone tells him his first team is going to get relegated. Now, what's the best piece of advice that you can offer him with the benefit of 47 years' experience? Well, that takes me back 47 years, of course, because that's exactly how it, how it was when I went to Harmstead in 1976. Luckily, the negativity wasn't necessarily coming from within the club, which was good. Um, I was sort of welcomed there as a, a fresh face and some fresh ideas, so that was very positive in that respect. But I do think that I did receive some advice from people around the club vis-a-vis -vis some of the players. And if I'd have listened to that advice, it would have been a major mistake because one of them was to get rid of the player who I didn't know at the time, but I thought, well, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm going to, first of all, watch and make a, a judgment myself. And the guy turned out to be absolutely the best player at the club during my five years there. So I think what you try and tell people, I think, is to keep an open mind, of course, you know, not, not be too put off, I suppose is the right word, not to, not to be too damaged by the negativity that, that might be there, because it's your job to spread some positivity. That's going to be your job, whatever. And then I think it's a question of trusting in, in your methods, really. I mean, the, this young guy we're talking about, he's been given the job. People obviously have seen something in him to make them believe that with this person in charge of our team, we can get some results. I think that person needs to show some sort of belief in himself, belief in his methods, and work very hard then, of course, to sell his ideas mm. to the players that he finds in, in front of him. Well, both Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp said on this podcast that a coach needs to love the game first and foremost. Yeah. What specifically do you love about it and how do you translate that love on that pitch out through the window there? Obviously, I totally agree with what they say. I think that without that love and enthusiasm and passion for the game, you're not going to necessarily last very long because so many things do happen you know, during the course of your career that it's very easy to, to lose a bit of faith, to lose a bit of heart, and even to become perhaps a little bit cynical about your approach to the game. And I think that, that cynicism and a feeling that it doesn't matter what I do, it's not going to, to make any difference, that is the definite killer, if you like, of any ambition you might have. But what I like most specifically, what do I like most specifically? I like working on the field with the players. I like the patterns of play in football. I like seeing how teams have set up to attack and how they've set up to defend. I like seeing what the coach has been able to do in terms of bringing out the best in his players, to, you know, helping them to become resilient, helping them to make good decisions on the field of play, helping them to get over disappointments. I think all of those things are things which really uh, appeal to me. And I think the other thing is, of course, it's I've always liked the idea of having something to look forward to at the end of the week, you know, some specific goal. You work in the week, you enjoy 
hopefully the training sessions, you know, out in all weathers, trying to bring about, if you like, what you're trying to bring about with your coaching. But then you've got the examination at the end and you've got that game to look forward to, even though, of course, sometimes the game disappoints you. They don't all give you what you're looking for, but at least they give you a chance to get what you're looking for. Mm. Eric Tang Haag said that he was really enriched by the experience of working and learning in a different culture when he was working in that development role at Bayern. Mm. Yeah. You've worked in eight countries. Has each of those cultures and countries honed your approach? You pick up little different things as you go along. I'm sure you do. I mean, I don't know that I can be as specific as Eric in that respect, you know, because he might, coming from Holland to Germany, he might have found a very different way of working in mm. Germany and he, he decided this way of working and this way of doing things is better than I left behind. I didn't really have that as such. What the countries and the cultures have done for me, really, they, they broadened my outlook, they broadened my perspective on life as well and I think in, in football you need some sort of perspective and it certainly has taught me that there isn't just a way of doing it. I mean I've got to say probably when I started I'd have been much more rigid in that respect you know the, what we were taught by the English FA in terms of how we should coach and the type of things we, we should coach it would have been a much more rigid approach but that's normal because I didn't really have enough in my locker to move away from that very firm foundation we were given. The travelling and all the experiences of the travelling and all the people you meet along the way and the way in different countries football is viewed slightly differently. Certainly in the early years in Sweden we were competing very strongly with ice hockey. I mean and it wasn't football I think now has firmly established itself as the number one sport but during the 70s it was a pretty much a close call if you'd have said to a Swede what's the national sport, many would have said well, it's, it's ice hockey and, and not football. And then you go to Switzerland where, again, there's a, a lot more perspective with regard to football and, and life. And I think those are things which are, are very useful for you to learn as a, as a coach. But I don't think I can perhaps point as much as you're suggesting Eric Ten Hag has done then. Mm. This culture changed my life. It changed my life in so many ways, but not specifically in terms of how I would go about working with a team and coaching because I've gone into those countries with the philosophy, with my leadership style, with my belief in what's required to produce a winning team. And I've been allowed to, to do that. Mm. And it's been small differences. What about the, the Italian experience? Because you know, there is a great respect for almost the principles of preparation, you know, Retiro and everything else yeah. that you get there. And this whole principle of incremental improvement through repetition. You know, this whole idea of you know, home team shape constantly on the training ground. Mm. Is that an Italian trait or is that a universal no. thing? No, that's not an Italian trait. When I went to Italy, um, Vigo <clears throat> Saki was just starting at the same time with his Milan teams. And what we did at Inter and what he was doing at Milan were, were not typical of what was going on in the country. Yeah. The players, when I came into Inter, weren't used to the what you're talking about, the honing of team shape, the repetition to make certain that you do things almost without thinking because mm. you've worked so much on it in the week. That wasn't typical at all. 
What was different, and, and as you rightly say, was the culture of the retiro. It was maybe the culture of the physical preparation as well, where I thought that was far in advance, really, of what I'd left behind in Sweden in particular, mm. and then Switzerland. They were far in advance in that respect. But if you're talking about tactics and team shapes and honing the team shape, I would say that, you know, myself and Arrigo at that time were pretty much on our own at the start. And uh, it blossomed from there, in particular in Italy, with Saki's success. Not mm. my success, but his success. Mm. What qualities define the best coaches? And I'm, I'm thinking here specifically of the importance of humanity and humility. I was struck yeah. by a comment you made when I was preparing for this chat, where you said, a bad coach thinks he knows everything. A good coach realises he doesn't know everything. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's... a. I'll stand for that quote, and I think it's relevant to a lot more than football. I think that that's a, a way of going through life to some extent. You know, we, we meet people in our lives all the time, in all walks of life, who are difficult to deal with because they are convinced that their way is the only way and they know everything, and, and I think you might come up with is wrong. And there's no doubt that if you want to run your club in that way, you'll soon meet a lot of barriers because you'll meet a lot of people along the way, players, leaders, all sorts of people who don't agree with that and maybe do have a few other suggestions which might have helped you. Mm. But if you're talking about the qualities of best coaches, I, I, I got one or two here. I think, first of all, if the coach lacks enthusiasm and energy, it could be a non-starter. I think the ability to inspire is so important. That selling of ideas, that communication, that, you know, there's a group of players there and they accept the owner of the club, the chairman of the club, he's given us this guy now. This is this guy. He's going to be the one who picks the team. He's going to be the one who decides if we play with a back four or a back three. He's going to decide how high up the field we play and whether we press higher, whether we drop. It's his decisions. It's going to do that. And I think the first thing you've got to do there is sell those ideas to the players. You know, if they are your ideas, well, this is how we're going to... You've got to sell it to the players and inspire them that, OK, if we get behind this and if we do what he's saying, and often your manner and your enthusiasm and your energy and your passion might help along the way, then you've got a chance to, you know, achieve some success with what you're suggesting to them. But it's also, I think, consistency in, in approach is very important. I think being able to put yourself in other people's shoes. I remember seeing a, mm. listening to a talk from a, from a very, very nice guy called uh, Vicente del Bosco. He gave a talk after they won, I think they won the Euros one year, they won the World Cup the next day. And he wasn't a great communicator as such. He was obviously so much more happy in a football environment with players. He wasn't that happy having how do you do it and what's your theory and what's your philosophy. And all I remember him saying, which I thought was absolutely spot on, what do you try to do to get the players playing in the way you want it to play? He said, well, I try to put myself in their shoes. Mm. And I think that's quite an important factor. And that brings me partly as well to the sense of perspective. You know, that, you know you've got to, I think, try at some stage and the consistency would depend to some extent on that. I was in the you're in a press conference now where what do you say to your goalkeeper when he makes a mistake? What do you say to your, you know, you put it in the perspective of things. And mm. if I thought that the 
sent half in, scored the own goal, needed me to come up and say to him, oh, you, your position was wrong or bad luck, I would have done it. My judgment was, it's one of those things, he knows it, I know it, you know, let's not yeah. compound what's gone on by reminding him that, well, if you'd have just moved your body a little bit, we might have not considered the own goal. How do you, as, as a leader, develop a team ethos? Because we're in an age now, aren't we, where the individual is celebrated, he's hyper-celebrated. Yeah. Well, it doesn't get easier in that respect, as you rightly say. You know, we are in an era where people don't have quite the same respect necessarily for elder people or, or for authority figures. You know, there's a, a big difference in my lifetime how we regarded teachers and, and, and mm. policemen and uh, doctors and nurses. It's not quite the same today, so you have to come to terms with that. But I don't know necessarily that that has changed so much over the years. If I think back to the, the great teams of the 60s, perhaps, and even to some extent, I can even go back as far as the 50s. I think there were an awful lot of individuals in, in those. How did, how did Stoke and Blackpool get Stanley Matthews, you know, to play as a team player? How did Preston get Tom Finney playing? I'm, I'm pretty certain there'd have been moments in there where the team ethos was going to be up against the importance of, a, of an individual. So I think that. In your team ethos, you have to come to terms with the fact that there's a, a fair amount of manipulation to do it. it. It isn't quite simply that everybody has exactly the same value because players themselves realise that too. Mm. Players themselves realise that, well, we have the same value in terms of the way the coach treats us, speaks to us, tries to help us with our game, but we don't necessarily all have the same value in terms of what we bring to the team because this player I'm playing alongside is worth a hundred million pounds and is scoring goals to win us games every week. And I actually am the player who wins the ball in midfield and you know helps to provide it. So I don't think it's that difficult in that respect. The major change I think in football has come through agents rather than parents. Mm. Agents today are the ones who control so much that goes on in the player's life. They give him all the feedback he needs, they, they tell him what he's doing right, what he's doing wrong, they encourage him to make all the decisions. But we can never be 100% certain that they're giving him that advice in the way that we were more certain in the past that the teacher and the parent was giving him the advice. Mm -hmm. And that can lead people you know, down a different way. And, also, the fact that the money aspect is not a great factor with regard to trying to get a good team ethos because, you know, people haven't got quite the need anymore to really suffer and, and fight to actually get themselves a job and to make a, just that little bit of money which will get them on a ladder somewhere because from quite an early age, they... You know, they can be signed at 15, 16, and their parents being given houses and players being given salaries, which are unthinkable for the wide world out there. Mm -hmm. So that has affected us because everything that's going on in our world, we have to come to terms. We can't just say, well, it wasn't like that in the past and, you know, we thought it was better then. That's ridiculous and it's even a mistake to think that way. Mm -hmm. I'm only saying this to make the contrast of the world that we do have to accept that we live in, but it shouldn't really change the fact that players need to understand that football is not an individual game. Snooker is and tennis is and 
you know, there are individual goal physics. So if you really want to play an individual game, there are games out there. If you go in for team sport, you do have to accept you've got a part to play in that team. And I don't necessarily think that's such a hard message to get across to players. The hard thing to get across is to get the player who does prize his individuality more than most to not in some way use it to the detriment of the team. He might not use it to really help the team as much as he could because of his individualism, but your job might just be to make sure so he doesn't really hurt the team mm. that much in his individual approach. Mm. But it's not a new thing. It, you know, it, it's wrong to put it on millennials, it's wrong to put it on the way football is. It's existed always. It didn't exist funnily enough very much when I went to Sweden the first one. My, my early years in Sweden, it didn't, I think, impact that much during those years. But probably the most socially democratic country in, 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 in Europe during those years, from 76 through to 1990, I left with Olaf Palme and mm. Target Erlandsson before him. That was a social democratic country. People accepted paying a lot of taxes, but the money was spread out and everyone... That was the culture of the nation. That's what a Swede was. So therefore, it was probably easier for them mm. to accept that, you know, we're all in this together, we are a team. And that's where we see the, the educational elements of travel and experience in sure. different culture. Football, though, just end up with a couple of questions on personal motivation more than anything else. Football's always been a, a people business, flesh and blood. Mm -hmm. And a lot of managers that I know do have personal allegiances. Most of them don't broadcast them. But it's renowned that Palace is your club. Can you remember the first match that you watched them. How are your senses captivated by this thing called a football match? Yeah, I can't remember the exact game. I know how old I was. I know I was, I was in my sixth year, either just turning six or just past six, I would think, my birthday being in August, I'd probably just turned six. What I remember most actually is the journey with my father and the, a few friends that lived a couple of houses along from us how we'd all meet up to walk to the stadium every Saturday. First team one Saturday, reserve team the next Saturday, that's how it was. And then when I got there, being hoisted by uh, my father on a sort of crossbar by the stanchion behind the goal on the terraces and the homes they were rolled in to get a better view because otherwise I'd have been too small and then being allowed to run down sometimes to just behind the goal in the hope that a few balls might land behind the goal and you get the chance to kick them back. They're the things I really remember and I think, I suppose, there must be a lot of other things that affect your senses as well. I don't know that I picked up on it at the time but I can imagine, you know, the, the colours of the opposing teams, the the noise of the crowd and the excitement the crowd can smell, generate smell, and everything. Right. All of those yeah. things made, made a very big impression upon me. And also the routine, that, that, that routine that, right, it's Saturday, what time is it? Are we ready to go yet? And then coming home and running to the newsagent to get the, the pink newspaper to find out the results of the other games because we didn't have 24-7 didn't have football. Then you had to find out the results by waiting till 6, 6.30 till the 
get what the pink paper was called now. It was a pink in colour, which gave you all the results. So they're the things I remember very well. I can remember the odd specific match, but it's more it's more the general order. And I think it's also there's an element of being a part of something. I think we see that still today. Mm. You know, football gives people a club to belong to. It's still strange to this day that if someone comes on a, a quiz programme and they say, you know, what's your interest? And the person said, well, I, lo I love football. To some extent, you get drawn to that person because he's part of your club, he's part of your group. You know, that's, that's who we are. We're, we're the football lovers. Yeah. Uh, they've got the theatre lovers, the cinema goers and the music people. But uh, I think there was a, very much an element of that in my early days. And then, of course, trying to make a career as a professional player and hoping it would be here and not succeeding. But, you know, that's a, th a, mm. a very topical thing at the moment. I mean, many, I was in, a, in the same boat as many people who thought they might be good enough, but were told they, they aren't. Yeah. But as a final point, and thank you for your time, what's been the most enjoyable factor over the last six weeks ago since you came back here? And yeah. I know this isn't your decision, okay? But will these familiar emotions that you've spoken so vividly about, will they tempt you to stay on if they want you? <laughs> well, that would be, that would probably be the most important factor. <laughs> Does anyone want me? I mean, so I certainly didn't come in for people to want me either here or elsewhere. I came back because I was persuaded there was a job to do here and the people at the top thought I might be the man to do it and I was more than happy to accept that. And what I've enjoyed most of all is no doubt being back on the grass doing the coaching with the players. I mean, and I've been very fortunate that I found such a, a receptive group, you know, the group that's really welcomed us and been interested to hear, mm. you know, what have you got for us today? You know, what do you want us to do? And we'll get behind you and try to do it. The preparation of the training sessions with the staff, all of those things. And of course, looking forward at the weekends to to the game, as you mentioned on the way up. Mm. I remember there was a, a great man I met in, in Sweden. You, know, you may have heard of him. He was very famous in Sweden. His name was Orvar Bergmark. He was one. He was a captain of the team in 1958 when they when they reached the semi-final of the World Cup in Sweden. And also, I think when he had 96 caps for his country, he was at that time probably the most capped European player. So I'm going back into the early 60s. And in Erdebrug, when I, I would go to lunch with him every Wednesday, he was like a god. I mean, I'd not, I'd not come across this before. I'm aware of it now. Yeah, we see it here now, you know. If Klopp walks down the street or Pep walks down the street there, there. But I wasn't used to that. You know, I hadn't seen much of that. But that was how it was with all of I'd walk down the street and people would actually be stopping and nodding, you know, very politely and saying how glad I am to see you. And he was so gracious. But he said two things to me which I thought were very interesting. One of them was... I went there with big fanfare, coming back from England after Bristol City had got uh, put into liquidation. And I went back there, and from the reputation of Harmstad and the two championships, ah, oh, we're going to succeed now, we've got a new coach. And sure enough, long pre-season went brilliantly. You know, we we winning games and we even beating teams from the league above us, etc., etc. But then the league starts, and after five games, we were second to bottom in the table. And I was pulling my hair out, really. And then on one of these lunches, one day, he said to me, 
I envy you. And I looked at him, I thought, are you, are you <laughs> being funny? You envy me. You know, I walk down the street with you, you're a god, and people are like shaking their heads, what have we got here? You know, I can't win a game. I said, what do you mean, Oliver? He said, well, he said, you've always got something to look forward to. He said, now in my job, he, was, he, he became a head of the sort of sports council, looked after the stadium and all those things. He said, I haven't got anything to look forward to now. I've got my job every day, but you, every week, you've got the preparation, then the game, and you can look forward to see what happened. And then I asked him another time, he said, you know, what did you think about when you were coaching? What was your thought? He said, well, he said, I used to sit at home and think, I want the players, when they come to train today, to think, I wonder what all of ours got for us today. And I thought that's two fantastic philosophies. You know, I've got to say, I think those two things did affect me because it gave me at the time a perspective that I was very close to losing after the Bristol City experience, which was pure disaster. Mm. And then that start, I could so easily have lost perspective. He put me back on track. Why are you here? What are you? Well, you're here because you love football. You like the preparation. You like trying to get the team ready. And just grow up, you know, you can't win them all the time. It's happier when you're winning, but if you're not winning, come to terms with it, do something about it. Mm. And if you like the job, keep yourself going. Mm. Well, Roy, thanks. That's a privilege because basically what you've just done is distilled a lifetime's experience into about 20 minutes. Thank you. Not, not quite, but yeah. yeah, it's a pleasure. Well, I must say, I did enjoy that. It was a bit like being in a warm bath. Paul, you've literally written the book on the England team. There's so much more to his career than that job, and it shouldn't define it. Do you think it will? No, I don't think so, Mike. I, I think partly because of the way he handled his departure. I mean, he came out of it undeterred. As we all know, the England job sours a lot of people for life, but it didn't really knock Roy Hodgson out of his stride, even though it, it, it wasn't the happiest period of his career. I suppose he's got three scars in his on his CV. One would be Inter Milan, another would be Liverpool, and England would be possibly the biggest. But he's incredibly good at rationalising what happened. I mean, the Iceland game in 2016 would have, would have destroyed a lot of managers and coaches, but Roy Hodgson just cast his usual analytical eye on it and said, well, the players didn't take any responsibility when things started going wrong. And he was actually rather proud of the work he'd done in across three tournaments, two European Championships and a World Cup. I think he had that job when there was a bit of a... Uh, England were in a trough, a talent trough, if you like. I mean, let's not forget the England squads around that time contained John Ruddy and Ricky Lambert. I mean, no, no offence to them because they're very fine Premier League players, but England were struggling for for talent and I think from the repair job he did in 2012 he, he he moved the whole thing on and by 2016 even though that European Championship was disastrous you know a, a more attacking younger exciting team was starting to take shape so in terms of outcomes it, it wasn't great but I think he did his usual you know conscientious and constructive job. Mm. He, he spoke Dom about selling your ideas as a coach or a manager and not only that, your personality and your philosophy. Now, to the modern player, that's quite difficult, isn't it? You know, here we've got someone who is relatable to a, a player 50 years his junior. That's some sort of art, isn't it? I think that's probably his greatest skill. I mean, yes, he's an excellent coach, and 
but getting those ideas across on the coaching side and on the on the training pitches is an art skill and it's and maybe it's steeped in his time as a teacher brief time as a teacher prior to going into coaching I mean I, I remember talking to him in his first stint at, at Palace and asking him how he relates to South London boys basically coming through and into that Palace setup people like Wilfred Zaha who who other managers have struggled to to deal with and and to to understand and but Roy has a he can empathise, he can communicate and talk with these guys. And I think when you look at the Palace team now, that he's revived in this little six-week, seven-week period, you know, you'd expected a Patrick Vieira-like figure who, who, you know, who, who was inspirational because of his playing days. He, he he was an inspiration for Michael Elisa. He was an inspiration for Eberich Chiesa. But he wasn't able to get across his ideas to those guys, and and not in a consistent basis anyway. And Ezra being the case in point, or he may be the only one of I think two Palace players that's featured in every single game. But he was largely off the bench during Vieira's stint, certainly the latter days of it. But Hodgson's come in, and he he talks to them. You can see just by speaking with these players that they they appreciate what he's telling them. They enjoy working with him. He enthuses them out on the training pitches. He 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 gets their juices flowing basically, I and mean, he he taps into their qualities and he allows them to express themselves in a way that they they weren't able to previously. And I think that that is his, I think that is his greatest skill. There were certain sort of tenets of his his philosophy that came across. I thought Paul, you know, that whole idea that that cynicism is the killer of ambition and that message to young coaches: don't be damaged by negativity. Trust in your methods. That's quite a timeless lesson, isn't it? I think so. He's always had a very strong wall around him, hasn't he? An intellectual wall around him. He's, uh, I mentioned earlier on his, his confidence, his certainty. He has faith in what he's doing. He's, he's consistent in his methods. And he does convey, as Don said, a very, a very positive outlook. And one of the keys to his longevity, I think, a bit like Alec Ferguson, he's a master of adaptation and he, he accepts that the game can change while he at the same time can hold on to his core beliefs and apply them on the training ground. He's, he's clever, he's clever with people. He's a, he's a bit of a psychologist as, as Ferguson was. And this is why, as Dom said, he can, you know, he can be in a room with, with 20 year old players and, and understand that they have the same motivation, the same sort of makeup as professional footballers as the people he started out with in management in 1976. Mm. I think also there was a, a real flash of humanity there, Dom. You know, that image of Roy as a boy is a very difficult one to get your head around, isn't it? But it was very vivid, wasn't it? just love that. I mean, look, I would because I grew up in that area and I can, well, I, I can sort of picture that scene of, of him going to Sellers Park on his, you know, on his dad's shoulders at the game and watching watching from the Homesdale terrace back in the day and and the colours that he talked about although I was a bit distressed that he only mentioned the colours of the away team as opposed to the home team I suppose they would have been playing in claret and blue back then Palace but um it's it's yeah it was it was wonderful and it does yeah it's a bit of a strange one to get your head around that that because we all know Roy as 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 the coach as the manager and yet he was that young kid who who was taken to the football by his his bus driving father and all those years ago and they fell in love with the game and you know anyone that stood on a terrace back in the day and on you know 
Liverpool would have done and the Goldstone and I'm sure you did Mike back in the mm. I can't remember who your allegiance is now Mike it sort of changes every week doesn't it but um, oh, well, thank you <laughs> but I mean look we remember we remember those scenes don't we from the terrace we remember the I always remember the cigarette smoke, weirdly, the smell of the tobacco in the air, and, and it, it sort of brings back all those childhood memories. And I think it's wonderful that Roy Hodgson still has them and, and is still still so enthused when he talks about them as well. So, I mean, it was just, it was, it was brilliant. It was absolutely wonderful little passage of the interview. Yeah. Well, it's, it's nice to be reminded of why we, we all got involved in it in the first place, isn't it? Nottingham Forest at Selhurst Park in Sunday's synchronised fixtures, Paul. Now, they're safe. Is that due reward for patience and faith in Steve Cooper, not just in his coaching acumen, but also his his understanding of the sort of allegiance we've just spoke about? Yes, I'm sure Nottingham Forest were tempted to sack Steve Cooper a couple of times during the season, but didn't. The point is that they didn't in the end. They resisted the temptation. Very few clubs resist the temptation to panic and just change the manager and think that's going to solve everything. I mean, look at Leeds United. That's a classic example. But Forrest stuck with Steve Cooper. And I think, importantly, the fans stuck with him. They were still in gratitude mode for him getting them promoted. But they also believed that he could keep them up. And he, they also understood that he had this incredibly difficult job trying to sift through, you know, 25 new players and find a an effective starting 11 he did he did all those things and I, I thought there was a I thought it was a story that for for the whole of football to enjoy Nottingham Forest held their nerve Steve Cooper came through the trial and the fans got their reward it was a little I think that was a little morality tale for all those clubs and all those owners who just who their first impulse is to get rid of the manager mm. yeah we all know how our game works Dom he's bound to be linked to Palace isn't he at the weekend I'm I'm looking further afield. You know, he is an impressive graduate of the FA's developmental coaching system, excellent at age group level. Do you think as a natural progression, him succeeding Gareth Southgate has got some legs? Look, it's it'll boil down to what happens in the next couple of years, I guess. It's a, actually quite a delicate time, I think, for probably Steve Cooper. Uh, on the back of tremendous success at Forest first in getting them to promotion from being bottom of the championship and then and then keeping them there in the circumstances that Paul has just described and really galvanising the entire football club to the extent that you know cricketers at Trent Bridge next door to the city ground were the noise was as deafening for them on Sunday as it was inside the city ground absolutely incredible scenes the whole city is up there and it's that's so much to do with Steve Cooper but you know, I think he's probably in a position of... At most clubs, he would be in a position of power now. And he would be able to go to the hierarchy and say, this is what I want. But I'm not sure that that's how it works at Forest. I mean, those few occasions over the season where he was on the brink, he, he really was on the brink. I mean, he the, the owner would have had no qualms about, about ridding the club of Steve Cooper. So it, it's it'll be interesting to see what happens this summer. There will be suitors out there, absolutely. And... and you know, Steve Cooper could walk into, you know, the hierarchies the hierarchy at Forest and say, "Look, I've, Club X and Club Y want me." Palace interviewed him last time in the summer of 2021. I'm sure they'll look look at him this time as well uh, if if they're not going down the Roy Hodgson route. But they won't be alone. And it's it's really what Forest want to do next. Are they going to have another madcap summer where they sign 20 players and sort of upgrade all of the players that they brought last time? Because I think that might be. 
I'm not sure that Steve Cooper would necessarily have the ap- appetite to to go through that again. I mean, if you, if you're tweaking it around the edges, fine, and or maybe adding one or two pedigree players into to elevate the club and make sure that next season isn't another relegation scrap, then then fair enough. But I don't think anyone really can predict what how Mariakis works at Nottingham Forest and and what will happen next. Mm. Well, what will happen next on Sunday, at least, is that two out of the three teams still left in it will go down. Everton are probably in the best position, Paul. They can save themselves by beating Bournemouth in front of what's sure to be an impassioned crowd at Goodison. I'm going to sort of dip into Merseyside folklore here a little bit. Is Sean Dyche the new mentality monster? Because he's got a team there that should have enough about it in the big moments. I agree. And I think he's already doing very specific things on the pitch to save that team. If you looked at the way they negated Brighton tactically, I, don't, I haven't seen any other club do that this season, certainly under De Zerbe. Sean Dyche did a brilliant job at the Amex and Everton destroyed Brighton that day. Brighton didn't particularly turn up, but it was a, it was a triumph, a tactical triumph by Sean Dyche. And then in the Wolves game, he did something far simpler, but equally effective. He sent three centre-halves, into the penalty area, 99 minutes into the Wolves game. And between them, the three of them contrived an equaliser. And I thought that was brilliantly old school with a kind of modern twist. It was quite a, it was a nice goal, but it was engineered by three centre-backs pouring into the box, desperately trying to get an equaliser. So you, you've got sort of, in a way, you've got managerial cleverness at both ends of the spectrum there. And I think he's got, he has that, obviously, that motivational power and that spirit. He certainly has the experience in relegation battles, but he also has the nous. And this is, I think, we, we, we could be seeing the, the, the wisdom in Everton appointing Sean Dyche when they did, but they still have a job to do. They've got to turn up in the in the kind of form they were against Brighton for, for, for the Bournemouth game, you know, and, and make themselves safe. Of those teams down there, the three teams you mentioned, Everton are certainly... The, you know, the most likely to escape. Mm. Leeds, by contrast, Dom, seem really listless and, and lacking in the basics. Will their relegation confirm the myth of Sam Allardyce as this great firefighter? He does come across as being outdated and ineffective, doesn't he? I don't know whether you can judge him on that, to be honest. I, I, he's come in at a point of the season where it was pretty much a fait accompli that it was all... It was all done. It was there. I mean, so why employing then, Don? Well, that's the madness of Leeds United, isn't it? That's that's the insanity of of the chopping and changing and the in- uncertainty. And, and there's so much flux about that club, on and off the pitch. You know, ownership issues. Are the Forty ers coming in? Do they come in if they get relegated? What's happening to Ellen Road? What's happening to the players? The the, the recruitment in the last few windows hasn't been great. They've. I mean, it's. It's just a mess, but and it's well. I don't. I, I don't feel that about Sam Allardyce particularly. I think he's. I don't think he stood a chance. And and in some ways, to even have a an opportunity going into the last game, as slight as it is, to to keep them the vision is a semi achievement. Sean Dyer just had a lot longer. Everton have won one match in ten, and yet we've just been sitting here praising him. So, and that one match was brilliant at Brighton, as Paul says. But that is their only win in ten matches. But all these clubs down there have have their own issues. I mean, Everton can point to Dominic Calvert-Lewin's injury issues whenever whenever he comes back to play and such a pivotal member of that team. Leeds United, 
can point to the flux in the or the, the the constant chopping and changing in the ball in in the um, in the dugout or the or the the actual inadequacy of the playing stuff. And they got away with it last year. They're probably not going to get away with it this year. And as for Leicester City, I'm sure you're going to come on to them in a second. But of all of them, actually, they're the ones that shocked me the most. Mm. Well, I suppose Leeds, when you look at it, Paul, you know, there's a club in thrall to the ghost of Marcello Bielsa. I suppose they've got one major hope, which is on the last day they're playing Tottenham, who are convulsed by even greater internal turmoil, aren't they? They are. I mean, just on the Leeds point, very quickly, I mean, they've conceded 74 goals this season and scored 47. That's the wrong way around in my book. Um, They (laughs) sacked Jesse March on the 6th of Feb. They sacked Javier Garcia on the 3rd of May and they hired Sam Allardyce on the 3rd of May to try and save them. That's a pattern of, you know, self-destruction, isn't it? And Spurs, that's a different pattern and no more promising in some ways, although they won't get relegated. I mean, frankly, the, the flag flying over the Spurs stadium is as white as the shirts, isn't it, at the moment? The team is just, um, the team's capitulated. They're in eighth position, completely blown out of the Champions League spots. Managerial chaos, instability, Harry Kane probably going to leave. I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be a Spurs fan at the moment because you'd be, you'd be grasping for signs that this can be turned around. Who's going to turn this around? How is this pattern going to be broken? How's the team going to switch back on? How are they going to cope without Harry Kane? It must be rough. It must be rough for Spurs fans at the moment. But, yeah, they may, they may present themselves as, as passive victims for Leeds United, who will certainly hope, you know, they turn up half-heartedly. Alternatively, those Spurs players could say, "Look, we better get busy. This is the last game. You know, we better just get on with it and and um, uh, and and sort of restore some pride." In which case, Leeds would undoubtedly have a problem against them. Yeah, you mentioned Leicester, Dom. They're at home to West Ham. I suppose it was understandable pragmatism at St James's Park on Monday night. You know, the first clean sheet I think in twenty-two games got them a point that they realistically needed to stay alive. I suppose the question is, do they have the goals in them? Well, they probably, of all the teams down there, they probably, on paper, they do. Any side that's got James Madison, who, you know, we were fighting a few months ago ahead of the England, last England internationals. So he's in the fantastic form. Let's, he got a chance with him as a number 10. Harvey Barnes, is a threat off the flank. Ian Acho's got his injury issues. Jamie Vardy isn't the player that he was. Pats and Dacca's there. I mean, they've got personnel. They've got... Their problems have been at the other end. I mean, a bit like, as Paul said, I mean, they're defensively, they're, they've been so woeful. And, and to have that as a first clean sheet since prior to the World Cup is an astonishing statistic, really. It's it's funny one, because we, we were discussing this after that that point at St James's Park and you know enormous circumstances to get a nil nil draw there is worthy of celebration that's a that is a good solid point however i mean there, there was a a large slice of luck in in delivering it but but was there call for being a to be a bit more ambitious maybe in the last 10 15 20 minutes of the game as opposed to the stoppage time at the end which is when they mustered their only shot on target decent effort but you know kept out because if they'd won that match we'd be talking now about how this could be the end of an era at Everton and you know out of their hands etc 
West Ham will go to Leicester on the last day with a shadow team, I imagine, because because they've got a, a European final a few days later. So you'd imagine that Leicester will find a way of beating them. However, they will be fretting now that Everton can overcome a, a Bournemouth team that have lost every game they've played since they survived, they, they secured their own survival. Mm. What do you make of, of Southampton, Paul, and their chances of, of coming back? You know, Obviously, we've got to factor in the relatively you know, mediocre quality of the championship. Looks like they're going to have a new manager, Russell Martin, probably coming in from Swansea if they can agree the compensation, around about half a million. You know, there's a club which was sort of held up as a, you know, an exemplar of really responsible recruitment, planning. And frankly, they've just gone down with a whimper, haven't they? Yes, they have. Uh, Russell Martin is is highly thought of, isn't he? He's a very upwardly mobile coach. You know, they might have made a smart decision there. I hope James Ward-Prowse finds a good club to go to because I'm a big fan of his. I think he's the most, in many ways, the most underrated player in the Premier League. People think he's just a dead ball specialist. He's, he's, he's a lot more than that. And generally, yeah, Southampton got this model many years ago and got complacent on it, got a bit smug about it, thought it would last decades. The owners lost a bit of interest. There's a lack of conviction at the club. There's a sort of just an assumption that if you just, you know, do these tried and trusted things, you stay in the league and, and, and everything will be fine. Well, they've really been caught out. They've been exposed very, very badly. The interview that Ward Prowse gave when they were relegated was very revealing, wasn't it? You know, when he talked about the, the drop in standards and, and the lack of drive and the lack of focus at the club, it was quite a, it's quite a damning indictment, really, of, of the whole season. They know that. It's all there. The evidence doesn't have to be, you know, tracked down. It's right staring them in the face and they're, they're, they're underlying it. They're a strong club. And if they have made a good managerial appointment, which I think they have, they ought to come straight back. Yeah, they're playing Liverpool at St Mary's. I'll come to you later on this, Paul, because I'm sure you have a view. Liverpool, they're closing in, it seems, on signing Alexis McAllister. You've got Brighton losing key players after reaching Europe. It does sum up the sort of yin and yang of Brighton, doesn't it, that? Well, they'll have excellent replacements lined up. We, we, we know this. That's how they work. Uh, I, I Look, <laughs> Paul knows more than anyone. I, I, I should be sitting here saying, this is brilliant news, and thank you know seeing the heart and soul of Brighton's team being ripped out. I, I'm not, because I hate seeing perceived smaller clubs losing their best players to the top six. I, I hate it, but there's an inevitability about it. I, I you know I can I can see that, but I mean Brighton could be playing in the, they'll be playing in the same European competition as Liverpool next season, arguably. I mean I don't Liverpool aren't going to qualify for the Champions League. Alexis McAllister, and Moises Casado, that if if Liverpool is their option, then wouldn't it be brilliant if Brighton could keep hold of them for another year, see how they develop for a further season under De Zerbi, you know, a manager that is being praised to the hilt by Pep Guardiola, no less, and see whether Brighton can push into the Champions League qualification places. Because I think this year has proved that if you take the time to construct a team, you get your recruitment right, and you have the setup as Brighton do on all those fronts, you can challenge, and Brentford have done it as well into their in, in their own way, as, as, and Villa are doing it now to a, to a certain extent under Unai Emery. It's I'm all for that. I want that to happen. So, 
Although Brighton will have replacements lined up and they, they know the model and Paul Barber's come out and spoken about the model and they will push good deals on all these players and they'll get fantastically eye-watering fees for them all. I'd rather they kept them and had a proper go next season and see how far this, this team can can go. And, and that's coming from a Palace fan. <laughs> no higher praise. <laughs> it was interesting with De Zerbi, Paul, Guardiola characterised him as one of the most influential managers in the last 20 years. And he himself came out and basically said, you know, players like McAllister or Casado, well, they actually deserve to play at a higher level. You know, as someone who's got the club in his heart, what does that make you feel like? I think it's very hard to argue with the club's assertion that whoever they sell, they'll cope, that the next people are coming down the line. That's worked for them all the way through. So... You know, selling Ben White and Kukurea and Trossard and all those people has not harmed the team. The team continues to rise in the table. And that's partly because they found a manager who, as Guardiola is intimating, I think has moved the has moved the game on a bit. I think he's got his actual he's got his own brand of Premier League football, if you like, because it's possession based, but it's also kind of murderously intense and attacking. You know, they don't Brighton don't give you a moment's peace when they're when they're on song. So I think all the other coaches are looking at De Zerbi and saying, this guy's actually come up with something new here. And and I think he has. So if he stays, then that methodology will apply to the young players coming through. I mean, I think it's noticeable that he's been playing a midfield, two midfield players quite a lot in CISO and Buonanotte. You know, he's, he's obviously already looking to repair the damage if McAllister goes. And I dare say that Brighton will bring in players this summer because De Zerbi has said to the board quite clearly that he wants reinforcements, particularly if they're going into Europe. McAllister's come to the end of his cycle he's, uh, as, a, as a Brighton player in the sense that he's a World Cup winner and you can quite see why he'd want to go to a, a club of Liverpool stature and earn that kind of money. My, my bigger concern is around Caicedo because you know, he hasn't been through the full cycle at, uh, at Brighton and if he were to leave... I think that would be more damaging, actually, in many ways than, than McAllister leaving, because Caicedo, to me, is a, you know, he's a phenomenal player. He's a, he's 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 going to be one of the great number eights. I mean, I call him a number eight. He can play all over the place. You know, he's a sort of, he's getting close to being a, a total footballer. Really impressive player, but he's still very young, and it would be painful, certainly, for the supporters to lose him now. And some would question whether he could be replaced very easily if McAllister and Caicedo definitely left, but. I would imagine that the club's hoping to keep Caicedo well selling McAllister. Mm. Well, Newcastle, meanwhile, Dom, are planning for the Champions League. They've got a final day formality of sorts against Chelsea. Look, let's be real here. They're no longer the, the lovable losers, these romantic Geordie warriors, are they? It's a, it's a really hard-headed project at St James's. How do you expect them to respond to the additional challenge of the Champions League? I expect them to to add more players to the group. I think actually Sunday could be a bit of a shopping trip for them, a little a little spy at some of <laughs> the Supermarket sweep. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, look, they're, they're, Chelsea, as we know, have got this, effectively got this deadline on the 30th of June where they need to get players off the books for, for all manner of uh, financial reasons that we don't need to go into. But, but, they need to trim their squad and there are a few players there that I think clubs like Newcastle who can afford to pay decent money will, will look at and think, yeah, actually, you know, Conor Gallagher would add something to our group. 
I don't think they're one of the clubs necessarily in for Mason Mount, but he's another one that, that they could look at. And, and they're, I think that they're, they're they're shopping in that bracket now. They well, they should be because they won't want to be also rounds in the Champions League next season. They'll want to first campaign in twenty odd years at that level. They'll they'll want to make an impression, a positive impression, and and they'll kick on. And they are they have the wealthy backing. They have a they have a director of football in Dan Ashworth that, that will be organised already and will know the players that he wants to target and will be efficient in securing them, I imagine. I imagine it will be a, a, a pretty busy summer window for, for Newcastle, upgrading in various parts of the team to make their, their squad capable of competing on two fronts, in the Premier League and in the Champions League as well. And yeah, it's, the, the romance has gone out of it, really, for unless you're actually a Newcastle supporter and you're going back into the Champions League, there is no romance involved with Newcastle United anymore. And I found that very... I mean, I, I, it's maybe that people would object to me saying that, but the Saudi links are, are too obvious now. Mm. Well, that lack of romanticism is also emphasised at Manchester City, isn't it, Paul? But no one can credibly dispute the remarkable quality individually and collectively they've got within that team that title winning team and they can't deny the generational brilliance of of Guardiola's coaching given all that why has there been such a relatively restrained response to their success well the 115 charges I guess Mike and the fact that fans of every other club pounce on that every day every opportunity it's it's regrettable in a way that you're you're not allowed or supposedly not allowed to write about the players and the football and what a brilliant side that is without somebody reminding you that there are 115 charges hanging over the club. We all know that and we've all written it and said it. So it is possible to judge the two things separately up to a point because there's our old our old friend the asterisk is attached to everything Man City has been doing and if these charges uh, if they stick then there's going to be a huge re-evaluation of everything that Man City have achieved, no matter how brilliant the football. But when uh, when Pep Guardiola said yesterday, you know, let's not let this drag on, we, we need a resolution, we need to be told, let's get this over with, there's a simple answer to that. Well, Man City shouldn't obstruct the investigation or the or the inquiries or the, the legalities. They should get out of the way, tell their lawyers to sit back and wait, and then maybe the process will go a bit quicker. Mm, yeah, when we're talking about process, there's no more important process, it seems to me, than what is happening in Spain and the response to the sustained and vicious and shameful racial abuse of Vinicius Jr. What have you made of it all, Dom, from a distance? And how do you see something positive if something pragmatic coming out of this there are no easy solutions but what would you like to see happen i suppose greater sanctions but i don't think think that's a positive it's depressing that we're still sitting here talking about stuff like this i'm conscious that we've got three middle-aged white blokes talking about it as well um, mm. but it's what vinicius jr has gone through this season and prior to this season is unacceptable it's disgusting it's disgraceful and it's almost as if Spain is only really reacting because the globe has or because you know from the outside looking in people have suddenly have, have said this can't happen this cannot happen why is this 22 year old 
footballer unable to do his day job um, without being racially abused by large sections of supporters. You had we've had what well, we had four people arrested for hanging an effigy up of him. Atletico mm. fans. We've had three people arrested for the scenes at the Mestalla. We've now got a, a stand closed for five games. Forty-five thousand euro fine. <laughs> I mean, those sanctions feel fairly pathetic, to be honest. And it's almost like they sort of belatedly sort of realise actually this is a bit of an issue. And now we get the, you know, the, the Spanish FA and the and La Liga and the equivalent of the PFA over in Spain sort of coming together and. And mounting anti-racism campaigns that it really should have been in place a long time previously. It's not as if this is the first incident that, that he's had to, mm. he's been subjected to. Talk to any black footballer that's played in Spain. There are there are there are issues there. But then, you know, if I say all that, it's almost like we're 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 brilliant over here. We get it right all the time in England. We don't. We don't. It's a problem everywhere, and it needs to be addressed. Yeah, well, I, I tended to agree with Ian Wright, Paul. We've got to affect the money, get after the sponsors. Pretty simple. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I think the most alarming aspect of, of this current incident is the league president of the league attempting to tell Vinicius Junior that he'd misunderstood or that, that, that yeah. it was his problem and not the problem of the perpetrators. And the game, but the, the the pressure, the external pressure is immense now. If you think about the reaction in Brazil, where where the Brazilian government has has looked at the possibility of applying its own laws on a foreign territory to try and pursue this, you know, the statue of Christ the Redeemer, I think, was switched off, wasn't it, last night as a as a protest? There's, there's absolutely no way that Spanish football can ignore this problem. There are two ways ultimately to attack it beyond slogans and T-shirts. They are the rule of law criminal prosecutions and as you said Mike and as Ian Wright said go after the money because you know that's where the that's where the soft spot is uh, quite often unfortunately and, and and if they have to if they have to go after the sponsors and make the, the the clubs deal with this problem whether it's an external societal problem or not it's being enacted in their stadiums and if the police get serious and start prosecuting more people and exposing them then there's a chance to push it back, but there's not nearly enough effort being made on either of those fronts. Mm. I'd like to end by reflecting on something else that Roy Hodgson said. He talked about the aura of the game, of being part of something bigger than oneself. He's right, football is about belonging. Now that means it should be inclusive, regardless of colour, class or creed. The abuse Vinicius Jr. has endured should result in a new militancy. Only when teams walk off, I suspect, will something be done. It merely remains for me to thank Paul and Dom for the intelligence of their insight and to thank Roy for sharing the lessons of his life and times. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.